We've been talking in a series about how the gospel changes everything for everyone. Everyone who believes, including the way we live in the world. And last week we did an overview of the place of work in creation, that we are actually made for work, and that's been frustrated by the fall, and yet we still work in the power of God's redemption. This week we're going to get a little bit more practical and look at the gospel's effect on on the character of how we work, and not just work, but ultimately do everything. And I'm going to read a surprising passage to help us. And, and you'll see why it's surprising, but I'll, I'll explain it. And so we're going to read from the, the book of Ephesians, Paul letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and beginning and read verse 21, but I'm actually, and you're not going to, I don't think he has this queued up. I'm going to begin just a couple of verses ahead to give it a little more context uh, and start with 19 through 21 and then jump to chapter 6. In verse 5, listen to the word of God. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now in chapter 6, bond servants, literally slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. God, guide us as we open your word, as we look into it, as we read it and hear it, but Lord, help us to hear it with our lives, with our hearts and our minds, with our whole selves. Lord, do that work of the Spirit, and as we consider it, guide my words, guide all of our hearts and minds as we stand before and submit ourselves to you and your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We, we spend a huge portion of our lives working. And, and we have different relationships with our work and, and, and different work. And for many, work is at best a necessary bother and at worst a source of debilitating frustration. And for others, we find our whole identity and source of self in it. But Christians, because of the gospel, have a whole different relationship with our vocations, our calls, our work, and really everything we do. 
whether it's a, a job with a paycheck or a school or taking care of home and family, the gospel intrudes into this huge part of our lives and, and informs it and transforms it. I, I read what is often regarded as a controversial passage that speaks to slaves and masters. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on what it says to the way we see our work, which is honestly what it was really originally meant for. But first, because of the language, we must do a little background study. Whenever we seek to understand Scripture, the first work we must do is to understand its meaning when it was written before we think about what it could mean now. And to understand what it meant then, we look at the historical context and we look at the literary context. And only then we'll look at a a couple of practical implications for our sense of work and finish with an observation on the power and motivation that drives our work. Kind of the place we finished last week. We got to do that background work with this passage because it has so often been misunderstood and at its worst used to say that the Bible condones slavery. Slaves obey your masters. You can imagine that that was a favorite Bible verse of the masters of slaves in the 1800s and in the South and and honestly throughout much of Christian history. But a little historical background will do two things. It will help us see that the, the, both the slavery that is spoken of in the ancient world was, was different than the slavery in our country's history. But it's also going to do something else, even, even more importantly. We'll also see that what is said about slavery here and honestly in the rest of the New Testament provided the groundwork for the end of slavery and any prejudice in any form. When Paul wrote this passage to the, to the churches in Ephesus and the surrounding areas where it would later be read, he understood that it was going to be read in households. They didn't, they didn't have church buildings where they would meet on Sunday or, or Zoom and YouTube to reach into the homes from afar. They would meet in homes. And what he is writing in these chapters, the chapters 4 through The beginning of six is a common genre, and it is called household codes. It's about the way that we should live with each other within the structure of their society and in their homes. Husbands and wives live like this. Parents and children live like this. And slaves and masters live like this. Because you see, households were large and had generations of of families and servants all living together. And Paul is writing all of them in the household who would be gathered to hear his letter read out loud. And he's not doing social commentary on what he thinks of these social institutions of the day. Other places in Scripture would do that. Paul is being much more practical and suggesting how to live within those existing structures, how to get up tomorrow and live with each other in the house. 
Now that's a little bit of literary context. It is helpful to know that slavery in that age was, was something different than the experience of those who were brought from Africa forcibly and, and their children in America. That's why the ESV chose to translate the word as bondservant rather than its more common translation of slave. A couple of characteristics include that slavery was not racially based in the ancient world, but was primarily economic. It was never permanent, but typically 10 to 15 years long. People weren't kidnapped or born into it, but most were captured during wars or or soldiers who lost. And finally, slaves had rights. They could own property. They could even go to court against their masters. And they could even own other slaves. That is not to say that it is a model institution or something that we should be doing today, but just to show it was different than we might picture as Americans when we think of slavery. That's a, that's a little historical context of this passage. But here's another important point coming from the literary context. What was said about the relationship between slaves and masters in this passage and elsewhere in the New Testament laid the groundwork for the fall of any form of institution of slavery in any society wherever the gospel is applied to that society. And that is absolutely true for our own Western culture. Both the leaders in England who emancipated slaves or the abolitionists in America, they were primarily motivated by the scriptural understanding of human value and relationships that we see at the core of the gospel, by the gospel and God's love for us, for everyone. And we'll see an instance of this when we look deeper in this passage. We don't have slavery anymore in in either form. The brutal form of the American past, although we're still dealing with the consequence of that sin. But neither in the form of the ancient world but particularly the form of the ancient world and its relationships represent, and what those relationships represent can still be relevant to the experiences people have with work in our world today. The famous author Studs Terkel wrote a book called Working in the 1970s, and he started the introduction this way. He he wrote, this book being about work is, by its very nature, about violence to the spirit as well as to the body. It is about ulcers as well as accidents, about nervous breakdowns as well as kicking the dog around. It is above all about daily humiliations. To survive the day is triumph enough for the walking wounded among the great many of us. Last week, we looked at how the fall and how work for us is, is now hard. It is frustratingly unproductive. It's debasing and, and even debilitating in a fallen world. What Paul says here is going to help us with the reality of work. Two practical things. Verse 7 is the key. Chapter 6, verse 7 is the key. Rendering service with goodwill. 
goodwill. That's both the, the ESV and the King James Version. The NIV, NIV says it differently. It says, serve wholeheartedly. The New Living Testament says, with enthusiasm. And the message says, with a smile on your face. And then, and then they all say the same thing. As to the Lord. This often gets misunderstood as if we should do our work for our masters and bosses, kind of like we're doing it for the Lord. A better translation would be, work wholeheartedly. You are working for the Lord. When you're serving masters and working for bosses, you are actually working for God. In this way, In this way, your work is an act of worship. Another little piece of background. When others would write in this genre of household codes, they would not not write anything to the slaves, only to the masters. Paul begins by writing to the slaves and writes more to them than he does to the masters. He's showing them a lot of dignity in this world to even attend to them. And what he tells them is that they are not primarily serving their masters, their bosses. They are really working for their God, for their Lord, for Christ. And he is their ultimate boss, their real master, their Lord, their God. And then he talks to the masters. And he tells them, even though... Even though they're the boss, they have the same real master as those who are working for them. you got to imagine just how revolutionary in any world of bosses or masters or slaves this statement is. Aristotle taught that some people were meant to be slaves. Seneca taught that masters should always treat their slaves as enemies. Paul tells the bosses, the masters, that they are slaves too. You can see how how slavery is doomed if people are going to listen to Paul instead of Seneca and Aristotle. But there's another thing that this statement does. It means whatever work that you are doing... It means something. Our world ranks our work. Some work is, some work is world-changing, life-changing, but most work, most of the stuff that we do is just menial labor. And we consider it work. We consider work, sometimes we put it in categories of either secular or sacred and and we we sometimes make uh, salaries of millions of dollars. Sometimes we make minimum wage or just nothing. Now here, all work is for God. All those breakdowns, all those categories, are broken down. That's what Luther would call the priesthood of all believers whether you are preaching the gospel to Muslims in Asia or digging ditches in someone else's backyard, we all have the same master, 
leading us. And the gospel right here reaches to the farthest nooks and crannies of our lives, not just Sunday mornings for an hour, but where we spend most of our days working at home, at work, school, anywhere. And whether you're a brain surgeon, CEO, movie star, an unpopular school kid, or unemployed in Greenland, we are all called by the same good master. We're no better than each other. And as much as our world and workplace makes hierarchies at base, we're all on a level working for the same God with the dignity and grace that He's giving us. Secondly, this gives us perspective on work. Whether, whatever our perspective on work, our, our relationships with our work, this puts it in the right place in our lives. On the one side, it, it keeps us from overwork. Think about it this way. What are you trying to accomplish with your work? My dad started businesses. He was, an, he was an entrepreneur. And as I told you, I didn't grow up in a house of faith. He, he didn't believe in God. He was, he was an entrepreneur. That was his whole identity. And he worked his tail off. And when I was young, I thought it would be so that, so that he would create a business that would make us really, really rich. And at one point, he brought home brochures for private jets. He had great dreams. As I got older and knew more of his history, it became clear that he was, he was trying to please his unhappy mother who died when I was just a few years old. He excelled to please someone who couldn't be pleased. Either way, for, for money or to please someone, it was a recipe for frustration because he was never going to get satisfaction from either of those pictures. But in my first year in seminary, he met Jesus on the 405 freeway on the way to a meeting. And he immediately went from perpetually unsatisfied to knowing the pleasure of God in what he did. He kept being a businessman, doing the same things, but now it was a call to use his gifts, his knowledge, his, and his experience to give people jobs and a community, to make good things and services available to the world. And, and those things still didn't always work. But most of all, he did things to know the pleasure of the God who called him and led him to do those things. That what he worked for changed completely. And that, that changed his work as well. For others, the issue is underwork. You may hate your job or your boss or your school and your teachers. You may hate what you must do. And you may, be the, you may be the person who's always looking for the way to do the least amount possible. I always, I always think of that kid in school who would raise his hand and, and ask, what, 
what specifically is going to be on the test? As if they didn't want to have to learn one thing more. See, set all those frustrations and feelings aside. It's not about the boss. It's not about how much you like or dislike your work. You do it for the Lord. And this, and this gets to the final point. It's the point that we also came to last week. It's the power to carry out your work in everything that you do. I say to set aside all those frustrations like it's the easiest thing in the world to do. I know, it's not. It's absolutely not. Ultimately, that's the frustration of the fall that we're going to be dealing with until we come to the new heaven and the new earth. And I'm not even addressing the places where work is actual oppression and abuse. I'm not. But even where it is hard and frustrating and in a fallen world, as my friend Dean always says, where God guides, He provides. He gives us what we need to do what He asks. The answer is where we began this passage. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's, it's not just that we're on a level playing field serving one another whether we're husbands or wives, parents or children or slaves or masters. The real key in the wor- is in the word reverence. Greek uses the word phobos. Most often that's translated fear. The King James Version translates it that way. But when phobos refers to God, it is reverence. reverence. It is astonishment and awe. And it's being overwhelmed by His grace and His love. Psalm 130 verse 4 has the line, Because you forgive us, we learn fear of you. We learn this reverence and awe from His love and His grace. Makes me think of a story about the great theologian Thomas Aquinas. He's called the doctor of the church because he was the seminal theologian and thinker of the Middle Ages. And his thought is still the, the pinnacle of theology admired by all theologians of any part of our historic faith. And he wrote a lot. But near the end of his life, something happened to him. Just in a moment, in a day. And he wrote one word over and over again for pages. He wrote the word joy. Joy. And after that, he had very little to say. This man of words, he ran out of words to describe the God whom he experienced. And this reverence, this fear, this awe, it bleeds into all of our relationships and into our work. And Paul begins this whole section calling all of us to serve each other from our reverence for God. He calls all those who are greater in the society to serve the lesser and the lesser the greater. We all serve each other, husbands and wives, 
parents and children, masters and slaves, all as we serve the Lord who loves us. So we give ourselves to each other in in reverence and love for God. You may be the boss. You may be somewhere in the middle. You may be the lowest one on the totem pole. Know who it is you serve in everything you do. And show that service as you serve those above you, as you serve those beside you, as you serve those below you, as you serve the Lord. And do the work with the enthusiasm of the reverence for God. Let's pray. Lord, your good news, the story of creation, fall, and redemption, of your design, of the story of brokenness and sin, and the story of salvation and hope in Jesus Christ, it changes everything. It changes the way we do everything. God, may we learn to be those who who serve you in awe and reverence, with enthusiasm in everything we do, in all of our relationships, in our work, in our families, everywhere. For Lord, we stand amazed at your love for us, at your salvation in Jesus Christ. God, we love you. Guide us as we live each moment for you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.